When Amanda set foot in his office, he knew he had his work cut out for him as a Christian counselor. She was 15 years old. She had a dog collar around her neck. Attached to that dog collar was an industrial-sized chain that went down to her waist, and it was fastened tightly around her waist. She was all goth. She had the black lipstick, the black makeup, the black nail polish, but worse yet, she had some darkness in her heart that they had to talk about. So he gently approached her and said, Amanda, would you like to come into my office? He just wanted to invite her in, and she needed to be part of that. And she said, absolutely, I'd love to, but only if my mom gets to come with me. You know, she's my best friend. Wow. Interesting response. What would happen is over the next several months, many, many months of Christian counseling, they would delve into the abyss of what was going on in her life. Satan worship, sex and drugs, witchcraft, all sorts of stuff like that. But over time, her heart would be healed. And as her heart would be healed, her character would change. And what was interesting about it is at one point, he, he had to ask her, you've had this anchor in your, your life for your whole life. Walk me through that. She said, oh, yeah, it's my mom. Ever since I can remember, on my horrific days, as well as on my really good days, when I came home, I could know no matter what happened, I could snuggle with my mom in bed, and she'd just wrap her arms around me and tell me she loves me. That's what changed my life. This Christian counselor would actually do a case study on her, and he said, with the wisdom that I have rarely seen in parents, she, the mom, recognized that what her daughter needed was not more lectures, she had a lot of that, not more discipline, she had a lot of that. What she needed was more love. Fortunately, her mom had been giving this in doses for all of her life. Now, don't miss this, because he continues. He says, Amanda's mother did not allow her disapproval of her daughter's behavior to interrupt this pattern in the slightest. She offered a truly transforming love. Now, when I speak this next part, I want you to think of the love of Jesus. Transforming because while it could be resisted, it could not be received without a profound mental and spiritual impact. Today's teaching is not about parenting. Today's teaching is about character. It's about godly character, the kind of character that changes the world one decision at a time, such as what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. What rules your heart rules your character. What rules your heart rules your character, or in other words, when Christ rules your heart, Christ rules your character. Whenever I preach, I ask God for a burden. Give me a burden for this sermon. And this past week in Texas, that gave me a burden. This past week, just looking at all the stuff going on around the world, that gave me a burden. The burden of godly character, talking about godly character, because what if, what if all of us exhibited godly character on a daily basis as individuals, as families, as a church, in our schools, in our businesses, in our lives, we would change the world. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we step into yet another week of this very short series on the book of Psalms. It's in this series in which Pastor Bob, Pastor Brian, and I have, have, have taken some Psalms that are, are heavy on our hearts or that God has laid on our hearts to share with you. 
This week is one of my favorite psalms, and that, that psalm is Psalm 15. It is a psalm about godly character. It starts off with a question. It's got 11 character traits that we're going to go through. Then it ends with a statement. So what? What does that have to do with us? Because godly character can change your life. Godly character can change the world. So turn to Psalm 15. Let me set the scene for what's happening. We always go back to Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago, the most important event in our faith, the most important event in the history of mankind. Now go about 1,000 years before that. David, the writer of this psalm, has consolidated his power. He has subdued his enemies. He's got his throne now in Jerusalem, a, a place called Mount, that's referred to as Mount Zion. He's got the tabernacle. It's a small tent that would eventually become the temple in Jerusalem, but he's missing one thing. And that one thing that he is missing is the Ark of the Covenant because you see where the Ark of the Covenant is, that's where the blessings are. And so... The Ark of the Covenant's been at this guy's house named Abinadab for about 20 years. And, and so David haphazardly gets a team, and they go to get this Ark of the Covenant, and sure enough, they get it, and he doesn't follow God's specific rules and guidance when it comes to doing anything with the Ark. So they load up the Ark, they put it on a cart, they've got an ox leading the cart, and as they're going down the road, they hit a bump, and the Ark jostles. And a really good godly man by the name of Uzziah just reaches out to touch the ark to keep it from falling. And God turns him into a shroud of ashes like that. And David can't believe it. Uzziah is a good godly man. How did this happen? So David takes about 90 days to recover from this. And about 90 days later, about three months later, he goes back to get the ark. This time he's following the, the, the rule to the letter. And they take the ark and they bring it into Jerusalem. That's the background of just before he would write this psalm. Some people have speculated that he wrote this psalm about a good godly man named Uzziah. I think that's a lot of speculation. What we do know is David wrote it before or right after uh, he got to Jerusalem with the ark. So with that, Psalm 15, what I want to do is I want to speak it over you. It's not going to be up on the screens. It's, it's simply... Uh, me just speaking this psalm over you. I just want you to listen to these words. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. David says these words. He says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous and speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person yet honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. And I look at this psalm and I see failure all over it because those are some really, really high standards. And in the words of Warren Wiersbe, what we need to do is when we look at this psalm, we've got to remember that it's not a prescription to be saved. It's a description on how to live our lives. 
So let's walk through that. Uh, real quick, I always want to make sure I give a shout out to those uh, theologians and pastors and others that I lean into when I form my sermons. Uh, first of all, Dave, Dr. David Benner is the Christian counselor that wrote the case study on Amanda. We're going to revisit that pretty soon. Also, Warren Wearsby, great theologian. But then two Bible commentators that get very little playtime, Kenneth Barker and John Kohlenberger. So with that, remember what rules your heart rules your character. When Christ rules your heart, Christ rules your character. You guys ready to go? Yep, all right. I'm going anyway, no matter what. Verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your sacred mountain? David kicks it off with a question. And he talks about dwelling in a sacred tent. Remember, the temple hasn't been built yet. That's going to be built by Solomon, his son. So they got the tent, this, this very small, they call it a tabernacle, but it's really fairly small. If you may remember back in the summer of 2020, Pastor Bob did a, a series, or we did a series here on Moses. And in that series, Pastor Bob did probably the best teaching I've ever heard on what the tabernacle was about and how every part of that tabernacle reflected Jesus. Go back and look at it at some time. It was fantastic. And what we see in that, there's a place in the tabernacle that only the high priest could go. One time a year, the most holy of holies, it's on the day of atonement when he would atone or make sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. Speculation here for me. I think David wanted to go into that spot. David was a king, he wasn't a priest. And I think he wanted that so badly. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? So he asks that question, just like a good rabbi would ask a question who knows the answers. So he asked the question, and now he's going to give us 11 character traits, 11 of them. They're very tough. So let's look at this. Let's look at the first three. Let's keep on going. Verse two, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous and speaks the truth from their heart. Already I'm tapping out. I can't do that. My walk isn't blameless. I cannot go a day without sinning in my thought life or in my actions or my words. Uh, righteous, what does that really mean? It's a, bit, a word we kick around in church all the time, but what is it? I don't know if I can do that. Speaking the truth from the heart, I, I consistently fight against flattery in my life where I flatter others because flattery is lying. You know, I had a friend of mine come up to me a few weeks ago, and he got this new shirt, and it was hideous. I mean, it was atrocious. It was bad. And he said, hey, Kip, what do you think of my shirt? And what I wanted to say was, dude, it looks great on, on fire, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I just laid it out and said, oh, man, hey, it looks great. Oh, hey, let's talk about the Mariners. They're winning for a change. <laughs> so let's look at these three character traits from the start, because they're, they're really tough. But we need some clarification on them. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means soundness of character. Soundness of character. Back in uh, January, February, March time frame, before Easter, we did a series called Go and Love, Be a Light. And, and in, <clears throat> in that series, we looked at uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John writes, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what John's talking about there, what God is talking about there, isn't about salvation. He's actually talking about living this blameless life. What do I mean by that? You see, when we sin, when we biff it, 
What we need to do is we own it. We confess it to God. We confess it to someone else. We make amends with the hurt that we've caused. And then we simply stand up, dust off, and we get back in the arena to fight. That's what being blameless is about. It's fighting that good fight of faith. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But what about righteousness? As I said, righteousness is this word. We kick it around in church circles all the time. What does it mean? It actually just simply means honest conduct. Honest conduct. It's having your words and your actions be above reproach. One of my heroes is a guy named Dr. Tony Evans, and he defines it this way. He says, it's the moral standard of right and wrong to which, look at this, God holds people accountable. Ouch. Can we be held accountable? A friend of mine just said, Kip, I love the way, when I look at righteousness, I just love thinking I'm living right wisely, and I really like that. So it's honest conduct. Then truth speaking. Speak the truth from your heart. What does that mean? It means to speak the, the truth in love. It's actually about being kind versus being nice. Go with me on this. Being kind. Being kind is, it takes courage. Being nice is cowardice. Being kind is about being an encourager. It's about pointing out potential in people and walking with them through the highs and lows and winds of life. A flatterer is what I did to that friend of mine. You don't tell those tough truths. In fact, as a flatterer, what, what usually happens if you're flattering someone is that you're trying to get something from them or prevent something from happening, uh, happening to you from them. You brown nose at the office, as they call it, or as we called it in the military. You say things that aren't true. That's being nice. Being kind is speaking truth with love and compassion. It's at the right time, sitting down with that friend who has gotten some bad medical news, a bad diagnosis, and saying, hey, here's the thing. I know you're thinking this is going to be perfect and you're not going to go through a difficult time, but let me just walk you through some realities of this, but also let me help you understand that I'm going to suffer with you side by side. I'm going to walk with you through this valley, and we're going to see Jesus do miracles in your life. That's kindness. Being nice, that's, well, hey, just have a little bit of faith. Everything's going to be fine. Praying for you, and you walk away. It's speaking truth in love, but not being brutally honest, because being brutally honest is simply that, being brutal. It's cheering them on when they win, loving them when they lose, and for goodness sakes, please hear this. When... They have that breath that'll melt the paint off a wall that you give them that breath mitten saying, I'm doing this because I love you. My mom used to say, Kip, you always need to go speaking speak the truth, but don't go around telling it all the time. And I said, whoa, whoa, what do you mean by that? And what she means by that is you always want to speak the truth, but there's a time and a place for it. Speaking truth and love and kindness, you understand when that timing is. Okay, so let's go back to this psalm. Let's go back to verse 2, because we got to talk about this thing called the heart. Remember, he says, who can have intimacy with God? And remember our main idea, what rules your heart rules your what? Character. Character. You three ladies up here are amazing. You got it. Everybody else failed the test. Everybody gets to go home. You get special jewels in your crown. The one whose walk is blameless who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart. In the Jewish mindset, everything stemmed from the heart. It's why the writer of Proverbs 
In Proverbs 4, verse 24, would say, guard your heart for it's what? It's the wellspring of life. Jesus would agree with that. In fact, at one time, he's thrown down with the Pharisees like he, he did a lot because he was rolling his eyes a lot at a lot of the man-made laws that the Pharisees were about. The Pharisees were all about the externals. They were the leaders of the Jewish religion, and so they were all about the externals. And so they, they were banging on Jesus and his disciples because they weren't washing their hands a specific way. If you didn't wash your hands a specific way, guess what? You were unclean and couldn't eat. So the way they would wash their hands, you would have a specific container made for hand washing. You dip your hands in the container, I think like six times. When you'd come out of the water, you had to lift your arms up like this, and the, the, the water would have to go down your, your forearms and off your elbows and drop onto the floor. And then on top of that, you would have to dry your hands with a, with a very specially made or specially woven towel. If you did all of that, you were clean and could eat. And Jesus is going, come on, guys, are you kidding me? In Matthew chapter 15, verses 16 through 20, he hones in on this whole idea of the heart. He says, do you still not understand, Jesus asked? Do you not yet realize that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then is eliminated? But the things that come out of the mouth, look at this, come from the heart. These things defile a man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Yay, welcome to church. These are what defile a man. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile him. Jesus is clear. The heart matters. What rules your heart is going to rule your character. So let's go back to Psalm 15, because he's given us three uh, three of these traits. We're going to get three more. Verse 3. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. Some of your translations for slur, it says reproach. Let's talk about that. So David shifts gears, and now he's going to talk about things that we shouldn't do. So he talks first about uttering a slander. And as you look at this verse, all three are tied together. Because when you utter a slander, a slander is actually saying something untrue or destructive about someone. And when you utter that, well, you harm your neighbor. We can harm our neighbor through our actions, through our words, but I would say we can harm our neighbor through our thoughts as we covet them or we covet what they have. Because all sinful activity starts with a thought. Jesus would be having another conversation, and in that conversation, he would have a scribe ask him, Lord, uh, Jesus, Rabbi, who is my neighbor? And Jesus would say, glad you asked. And he would tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, the most popular parable in all of Scripture. And in that parable, at the end, what the, the, the meaning of the parable is, is that everyone we come in contact with is our neighbor. So no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, because a Samaritan, those guys were the spawn of Satan. And the Samaritan was the one that was doing the right thing. No matter who they are, what they believe, no matter what they think and whatever they're doing, we treat them with dignity because we're all created in the image of God. And then he says, and cast no slur on others. Cast no slur. That word slur is kind of cool. In Hebrew, it's herpa, herpa. And what herpa means is to actually say something about someone to cause them shame. And when I think about this, I think of the gossiper. I don't know about you guys, I love juicy gossip. I do. It's a sin, and, but I'm like, oh, tell me, tell me, tell me more. But the problem is, 
When you have a gossiper come up to you and start talking and then you share what's on your heart, guess what happens? They're going to go around and talk about you behind your back. That's why God says it's a sin to gossip. And that's what that slur slander thing is. We got six character traits so far. And as I look at this and I'm doing the, the math, I'm doing, I'm, I'm making a grade for myself, A, B, C, D, or F. I'm some days maybe a B. Most days I'm a D minus or an F. How are you guys doing? Don't answer yet because it gets tougher. David asks, who can have intimacy with God? Continues verse four. Who despises a vile person, ouch, but honors those who fear the Lord who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Okay, let's talk about that first part. Who despises a vile person? Is God telling us that we need to hate others? Okay, when, whenever I hit a, a, a difficult passage in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, because there are some very, very difficult passages, I got to pull up to the 50,000 foot level and I look at the principles of scripture. I look at the totality of scripture and in the totality of scripture, Jesus never wants us to hate others. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. So what does that mean? Here's my interpretation of it. This is just my interpretation. Despising a vile person is making good judgment about someone's character and setting up a healthy boundary between you and that person if their character is questionable or bad character. The Apostle Paul would say bad company corrupts good character, so we got to know who bad company is, what bad company is. It corrupts good character. I, when, I, when I think through this part, I'm thinking about when I was a youth pastor, I would talk to, to the teenagers in my youth group and I would say, guys, please understand this, that if you hang around people that consistently get you in trouble, if you have that special relationship with someone that consistently takes you down a wrong, wrong path and gets you in trouble, that's going to affect your destiny. So we guard ourselves. We put that that, that boundary up between those who have questionable or bad character doesn't mean we have to write them out of our lives, but we keep a healthy boundary between them. My dad was a, a good old farmer from Kansas, and my dad would always say, Kip, you got to be careful when you're walking in that cow field because you're going to get some manure on your, on your boots. And what he meant was if there's bad things going on that you're going to consistently, it's going to cover you too. So then he says, back to David, David says, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Let me give you two examples, two situations. First situation I think all of us have been through, we, we get that phone call or that person says, hey, I, I, I want you to, want to go out to dinner with you. So come on out to dinner, we're going to go out to dinner. And you're like, yeah, do I, okay, I'll do it. So you go out to dinner, or you, you, you get closer and closer to the time you're going to go out to dinner, and as you get closer and closer, you start dreading the date. You start dreading it so much that you start making excuses, and in the day of, it's like you've got any excuse you can come up with. i got to shave my cat because i got a really hairy cat. I can't go out to dinner, and you cancel at the last minute. Now, hear me out. Life happens, and sometimes when you set a date for something, things come up. That's natural. But if you're consistently bowing out of things that you say yes to, that's an issue. Jesus would say, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. So it's better to bow out from the start and just not, not say you're not going to go. 
Okay, I think all of us have been through something like that. Situation number one. Let me give you a different situation. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Think about this. When you got to have that car, that car is the perfect car. That car is going to do so many things for you. It's the most beautiful car on the planet, that 1978 Ford Maverick, and you've got to have it. So you do everything you can financially to get it, and finally you go to the bank. You sign on the dotted line who keeps an oath even when it hurts. And things are going well. You're making those car payments. And then life happens. And when life happens, instead of calling the bank and saying, hey, I'm going through a rough spot, can we work something out? And sometimes the bank will do that. Sometimes they won't. Instead of doing a side hustle or taking a second job or even selling that car, you decide, you know what, I'm just going to drive it. I'm not going to make the payments or anything. They'll come and repossess it. No harm, no foul. That's a character issue. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts with your rent, with your mortgage. I can go on and on. I once heard someone say that your character needs to be more important than your wallet. Nine traits so far. How are you guys doing with that? Because I'm still, I'm still around the, the, the D minus, okay, maybe a C on a good day after I have a lot of coffee, but it's hard. Two more, verse five. Let's look at the first part of verse five. Who lends money to the poor without interest. Some of your translations there say usury. Usury is just a really high interest rate. Who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So this first part of verse 5 is a litmus test for generosity for the Jewish people. When God gives the Mosaic law, he gives 613 laws. They're divided into three categories. First category is the ceremonial law found in, sorry, I fell asleep, Leviticus. The second, mostly, second, the second category is the moral law. The moral law, that's the Ten Commandments. But last but not least, he had civil laws because he had a, a huge group of people and they had to learn how to get along. So he makes a very specific law to protect poor people. About a year ago, I did a sermon here on biblical justice. There was a lot of stuff being kicked around about social justice. Social justice has so many great things, but there's some goofy parts of social justice too that aren't biblical. And so I, I said, let's, let's delve into biblical justice, what, have, what it means. And the th three of you here may remember that we looked at, at two specific Hebrew words. Two specific Hebrew words that deal with justice, tzedakah and mishpat. Tzedakah actually means to do righteousness, to do just things, to walk with honor and character, have your conduct be above report, reproach. Mishpat, though, is different. Mishpat is about rectifying injustice. So when the prophet Micah says, what does the Lord require of you, O people, but to do justice, it's mishpat rectify injustice. So back to Psalm 15. God has a soft spot in his heart for four groups of people in particular. The poor, women represented by orphans, or represented by widows, children represented by orphans, and immigrants. Widows, orphans, poor, and the immigrants. What would happen is lending money to the poor without interest would make sure that the society could flourish without poverty. 
But in that time, what would happen, people would, would be poor, and in order to keep themselves from selling themselves into slavery, they would take out these loans, and their Jewish brothers and sisters sometimes, but mostly Jewish brothers, would charge extremely high interest rates, causing more debt, and that upset God. So what about this thing about not accepting a bribe against the innocent. Again, it was mostly the poor that were having this problem that they would be taken into court and the well-to-do would bribe the court so they could take advantage of the people. Why is this important to us now? This is 3,000 years ago. It's important to us because godly people don't discriminate against others. When it comes to character especially, this is so important. Godly people don't discriminate against others. So David asks a question. Who can have intimacy with God? Eleven character traits. And now what he's going to do is he's going to close it with a statement. He says this, whoever does these things will never be shaken. And as I look at this, I'm going, wait a second, God, what you're telling me is if I do everything perfectly, if I'm doing everything, if I'm doing these things, nothing bad will happen to me, and God's saying, Kip, come on, you know that's not true. What it means to, to not be shaken is that life is going to hit you hard, but you're still going to be able to stand. Life's going to hit you hard. You're going to have those storms in life. Jesus would talk about that. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Psalm 15 in the Sermon on the Mount, Psalm 15 is like the cliff notes of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at Sermon on the Mount, at the end, Jesus says, whoever puts my words to practice is like a wise person who builds their house on a solid rock. That would be Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. And the winds are going to come, the storm's going to hit, but at the end of the day, you're going to be standing. That's what it is to walk with Jesus. You're going to be shaken, but you're going to be okay. You'll still be able to stand. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says these words in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, that honest conduct, that high moral standard, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the most moral people of all of Israel, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. As I look at Psalm 15, I go, no way, Yahweh. I can't do it. I can't do it. And as the Jewish people were hearing Jesus give them the Sermon on the Mount, they would say the same thing, Yeshua, we can't do this. And Jesus says, exactly right, you can't. You can't do it without me. So many of us are all about the externals. It's about how we look. You know, we got to have that, that image. And it was the same way back in Jesus' time. The, the Pharisees especially, they were all about how they looked. But what we know about Jesus is he wasn't about the externals. He was about the internals, the mind and the motives of the heart. Because what rules your heart rules your character. And when Christ rules your heart, Christ rules your character. So Psalm 15. Three responses we can have. One of three responses. Response number one is too easy. It's a piece of cake. I got this. And when we say that, we're like, no, that's not true. Second response Okay, I'm just going to knuckle down. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be perfect just as my father is perfect. When Jesus says perfect, perfect there, he's talking about spiritual maturity. And last I checked, that's not about performing for God and knuckling down. You're going to end up on a counselor's couch, been there, done that, for trying to be perfect. There's a third response, though. 
And the third response is, yes, I can't do it. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Beauty about Jesus. I love this. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he takes up residency in your heart. All your stupid stuff, past, present, and future, is forgiven. His Holy Spirit is living within you. He gives you the wisdom that you need to make right decisions. He convicts you of sin and calls you to, uh, to confess and, and to, to change your life and to work with him as he transforms your heart. But here's the thing. I've had some people say, Kip, you know, okay, Psalm 15. I know some really good people of character who don't have Jesus in their lives. They're living it out. And I say, no, they aren't. Because you can't have a blameless life without Jesus. When you receive him, he, he looks at you now and you're blameless in his sight. You can't have a righteous life without Jesus because when Jesus comes into your life, he covers you with his righteousness. It's imputed against you, so, uh, into you. So when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see our jacked upness. He simply sees Jesus. What rules your heart? What rules your heart? In the last few minutes here, I want to shift gears a little bit more. I want to go back to that story I told about Amanda. And, and I want to invite Jesus deeply into this thing called character. Now, remember, Amanda said that her mom was her best friend, and the one thing that helped her was on her worst day, when she was having the worst thing going on, she'd come in and her mom would still say, I love you, and they would just snuggle together. Dr. David Benner, the Christian counselor who counseled her, said these words. He said, the key to spiritual transformation is meeting God each day like Amanda met her mother in vulnerability. But here's what happens. If you guys are anything like me, and I, I would guess maybe some of you are, that you only want to come to God when you're cleaned up. When you're in your worst place of shame, your worst place of weakness, your worst place of guilt. You don't want to come to God. You want to give it, give it some breathing time before I can go talk to Yahweh, you know, the maker of heaven and earth. And God's like, no, I want you to come to me immediately. Come to me right now. When Amanda's heart changed, so did her character and her behavior. If we want to be men and women of character, it starts with the heart. One last story. Jesus is having a bizarre dinner. It's a dinner with a Pharisee. There are a bunch of people at this dinner. A whole lot of wacky things happen at the dinner. And, and it's found in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Read it on your own. And in Luke 14, uh, Jesus is having, again, this kind of strange dinner. And a guy basically stands up and says, how great the feast of the kingdom of God will be. And I can just see Jesus' mind going like this. You know, just the, 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 the wheels are turning. He goes, <laughs> really? Let me tell you a story. And he tells the parable of the great feast. This is a summary of it. Basically, there's, I would say, a rich man, but a very powerful man, and he decides to throw a banquet. In those days when you'd throw a party, you send out two invitations. Invitation number one. Invitation number one is to the people you're inviting, and they're supposed to RSVP. Invitation number two is the party's ready, let's roll. So he sends out a first invitation to all the people he's chosen to be in his life. Let's just call him his chosen people. And every single one of them comes back with, every single one come back with a, a, a lame excuse. 
I got to wax my chariot because everybody in Jerusalem wants shiny chariots. I've got to do it. Fill in the blank for whatever it is. And this infuriates this guy. So he says, you know what? Give me my servants. Servants, okay, this is what I want you to do. Go out into the highways, the byways, the alleyways. I want you to invite anybody and everybody because I got a lot of room and I got a lot of food. We're going to throw a party. And oh, by the way, go to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Go out and get them. Bring them in. And they do. And it's a huge feast. If you guys remember in our series on parables, first thing about a parable is a parable has one main meaning and it can have secondary or tertiary meanings depending on the size and depth of the parable. Here's the main biblical meaning of this parable. God would send out the first invitation through Moses and the prophets and his people would reject the invitation. He would send out the second invitation through his son, Jesus. Jesus would say, I came first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He would be rejected by the Jewish people, Gentiles, that's us. Guess who those people are? All of us, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. What if? What if, in the words of Christian author Trevor Hudson, what if we looked at Jesus' banquet being a banquet of love that he invites us into, and he wants us to come to him with our hearts, and we give to him the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame places in our hearts because we got them. I know I got them. I got that place in my heart, that, that, that place, that dungeon that I've got the key. It's the deepest, darkest secrets and I don't want to let Jesus in. But he's like, Kip, man, this is how you get healing. When I heal your heart, I heal your character. Give me the keys. He heals those areas as we expose our shadow selves because we all got them. We expose him to his divine love. We linger with Jesus. Don't miss this. We meet God in our sin and our shame rather than perform for his love. With that, I want to give you a challenge. A challenge. A very straightforward challenge. It is a lifelong challenge. And the challenge is one that I've been trying to live out for many, many years. It's called Coffee with Jesus. Coffee with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Let me just give you an example of what happens with me. I'm weird, as many as you guys know. I get up early in the morning, oh, dark, ugly, like 4, 4.30 in the morning, every morning. It's my, my quiet time, and I block it off. Fear not, I go to bed by 8 o'clock at night. So get up at 4 in the morning, and I have coffee with Jesus. I sit down with Scripture because, for me, that's how God really speaks to me. And it's funny how the more you read Scripture, the more Scripture reads you. The more you see those poor, blind, and lame, and crippled places in your heart, and you simply say, Jesus, here it is. I give it to you. I need you to help me. I need you to transform my heart because that's what true discipleship is. I want to be more like you, Jesus, help me. You do this day in and day out. And over time, what happens is those dark places that can cause some character flaws, they start getting healed. I've found that every single time that I've biffed it in my life, I've biffed it because those 11 character traits, one of those are involved at least, and I've stepped away from one of those character traits because I'm hiding that place in my heart. I don't want Jesus to go there and heal me. You've got to figure that out, what it is with coffee with Jesus to where he will step into your heart and you can commune with him one-on-one. -on -one. You do it daily. 
whatever that is, wherever it is, but do it because he will change your heart. You'll see those rulers of your heart be replaced with the love of Jesus because what rules your heart rules your character. So back to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 gets to the heart of why we're created and it's to have intimacy with God. That's it, to have intimacy with God. He loves us so much, he creates us so much to have intimacy with him. But Jesus would say in John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It happens through Jesus. With Jesus in your life, he will heal your heart. And when he heals your heart, he can heal your character. And with good, godly character, please listen to me. You, me, this church can change this world.